With three paths before you, which will you choose? When your travels take you to the City of Towers. When foreign lands demand foreign tongues. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ryu, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Lennon. And I'm Ostron. And this is the 42nd entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, September 22nd, and released Wednesday, September 26th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ostron, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? Well, this week, Lennon talks about rules and documents and which ones you want in your adventures packs. Next, we check out some D&D news as we bring you some coverage of our first glimpses at what awaits us in Dungeon of the Mad Mage and our take on the Adventures League Eberron Season 1 adventure, What's Past is Prologue. After that, we'll take a short rest and dig up some unearthed mandana for some more exotic royalty before finally looking into the scrying pool to see what you have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurer's packs. Do you always carry this picture bag? If we're gonna get out of here, we're not gonna need a few things. Name one thing you're gonna need the stupid roll for! Right. So this week's adventurer's pack is probably gonna be a bit of a strange one, especially as I imagine that most of our listeners will probably already have the official core rule books. And so this probably won't really apply for most of you, but anybody that you're getting into D&D will certainly want to have a copy of this and maybe they'll have some questions around it. Maybe you've got questions around it. So I should probably actually let you know what it is that I'm talking about. And this is the basic rules, the system resource document and the player's handbook. And particularly, what is the difference between the basic rules and the SRD and how they actually work together or separately and what's the best use cases for each of them? So breaking it down quite simply, the basic rules are a short set of documents that Wizards of the Coast published in order to get people interested into Dungeons and Dragons. You can kind of think of it in video game terms as being the free-to-play model. So the basic rules take your character from level 1 to level 20. It includes only the core classes and a single subclass from each of those, and it has only four races, the dwarves, elves, humans, and halflings. In addition, it has a handful of backgrounds, but what is most important, and this is something to bear in mind for later, is that it is most definitely Dungeons and Dragons. The things that they talk about in there are absolutely related to the product, and it contains lots of copyrighted terms, for want of a much better phrase. The basic rules were also released prior to the system resource document, or the SRD, becoming a thing, and so most people, if they're going to get into Dungeons and Dragons but they don't want to invest in the player's handbook, this is probably the document that you want to point them towards. So what is the system resource document then? Well. The system resource document is something that was produced by Wizards of the Coast, and it is a huge legally binding document that allows people to 
create their own adventures, their own systems, their own settings using the 5th edition rules. So going back to the video game analogy, if the basic rules are a free-to-play model for an existing game, the SRD can be considered the engine of the game. So you get games like Far Cry, which are built on the Cry engine, and who knows how many games these days are built using an engine called Unity. It is the the nuts and bolts of the system that allow it to run. Dungeons and Dragons is a layer that's on top of the SRD that contains things like beholders and various different terms such as Dungeon Master. And you might think that that's just a, a weird thing to include for a Dungeons and Dragons specific name, but the term used throughout the SRD and the wider term in the tabletop community is Game Master or GM. So the SRD has had every instance of DM replaced with GM. Why is this important? Well, you see, the SRD is a much meatier publication than the basic rules, and it effectively combines the player's handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual into a single 400-page document. And all of this has had the Dungeons & Dragons stripped out of it. Comparing it with the basic rules, you, instead of just getting the core classes and races, you get all classes and races, so this also includes tieflings and half-orcs and so on and so forth, but it does only include a single subclass for each. The intention here, as with most of the SRD, is that it's put in place to show you how to design your own subclasses, sub-races, etc. in accordance with the 5th edition rule set. So it includes all the races, includes all the subclasses. Unlike the basic rules, it simply has one background and one feat. Again, purely as examples. I talked about they removed the Dungeons and Dragons-ness from it to give it just the barebone systems, and in addition to removing things like DM and swapping it out for GM, they've also gone through every single spell, every single monster, every single creature that is actually copyright to Wizards of the Coast, and they've removed that, so you will not find any mention of Beholders, because they're specific to Wizards of the Coast and Dungeons and Dragons, and iconic spells such as Melf's Acid Arrow, Tense's Floating Disc, and Leomone's Tiny Hut are just simply called Acid Arrow, Floating Disc, and Tiny Hut. One of the key things with the system's resource document, though, and this is where a lot of people actually need the basic rules rather than the SRD, is that Jeremy Crawford has come out and outright said that the SRD is not a rules source. If you're having difficulty trying to make a ruling in Dungeons & Dragons, the SRD is not an official rule source. Now, you can take that with a pinch of salt because this is the nuts and bolts that Dungeons & Dragons run on, but there are a few minor differences between the two of them. If you're not going to invest in the PHB, DMG, and Monster Manual, then using the SRD will actually be able to answer a lot of your questions, but it will not be in-depth and it will not be fine-tuned, and it certainly won't be flavoured to Dungeons & Dragons. So this then brings us to the Player's Handbook, and what exactly is that when the SRD is there released and open? Well, the Player's Handbook is like, going back to the video game metaphor, buying the full-priced box copy. It's the full price model for playing Dungeons & Dragons, still retails at about $50, 
and it includes every race, every class, every spell, multiple sub-races, multiple backgrounds. It calls Dungeon Masters Dungeon Masters. It has the iconic spell names of Melf, Sassid Arrow, Tensus, Floating Disc, Leoman's Tiny Hut, Modern Kind's Magnificent Mansion. You'll find Beholders and everything. This is the flavor that goes on top of the engines, and that's what's present in the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual. So, in short, if you're going to try and get people into Dungeons & Dragons, the best way to think of it is that the basic rules are a newbie set of documents. They're free for people to have a taste of Dungeons & Dragons, specifically a taste of 5th edition, and this way they don't have to make the investment in the Player's Handbook if they're not too sure. The system's resource document, on the other hand, is a legal document. It is an engine on which to build your own things. If you want to create a book along the lines of 5th edition foes, or the Critical Role Taldore campaign setting, the SRD is what you want to use as the basis for this. If you want to run games at your table and you want to go a bit more in-depth than the basic rules, then the Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide and Monster Manual are the publications that you want to buy. So hopefully that demonstrates the difference between the three documents and their use cases. Of course, there are exceptions to this rule where the system resource document is available on D&D Beyond. So if you don't fancy reading through the 403 page document, you can just use D&D Beyond's free tier to access the basic rules and the SRD, which again is interesting if it's not officially a rule source for Dungeons and Dragons. But in most cases, basic rules are for newbies, SRD is for legal documents, and the PHB is for running your games. The other place this information might come in handy uh, is if you take the basic definitions that Lennon just went over and look at some online sources for 5th edition rules that you may have seen, uh, running them through this sort of litmus test might give you a good idea of whether the site you're looking at is reproducing copywritten material. Um, so as Lennon said, basically if you jump onto a website and it's listing a bunch of spells and it calls them Melf's Acid Arrow or Leoman's Tiny Hut and mentions Dungeon Masters and things like that, or if you're going to a character creation area and it gives all of the information about all the different subclasses and the races and so forth, you're probably looking at copywritten material that may or may not be officially allowed to be there. Now, how much that matters and what that means to each person can vary widely. Some people have an aversion to using copywritten material that they haven't paid for and they'll want to leave the site and not use it. Other people will simply want to have a heads up that at some point the site they're using might come under a cease and desist order if it catches the attention of lawyers. Either way, the information that Lennon just covered will give you a decent idea of what type of resource you're looking at. I'm really glad you went over this one this week because I know that there are a lot of people who do have trouble figuring out the difference between all of these. And I also want to say that before one of our listeners brings it up, it is systems reference document and not systems resource document. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, systems reference document. Um, yeah, and 
uh, it is something that I do see come up time and time again, and a lot of people have actually even asked either through our Discord or through social media channels, you know, which one is which, what's the difference between using them, should I buy the PHB if I can get it all for free in the SRD? And it's like, yeah, kind of, you can, but there are, whilst they do, like, overlap on the Venn diagram, all three of them do have different uses entirely. So... One of those uses being the artwork, which I know a lot of people don't really care about paying for, but I think that alone is worth the price of the book. Yeah, the the artwork in the PHBs, uh, well, and pretty much everything that Wizards have pumped out is really good and really high quality. And, you know, you also get in the... I want to say it's in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, it might be in the Player's Handbook, but one of them includes a section where they just give you a load of maps for free. Just, you know, oh, if you need a ship, use this one. You know, and it's it's right there. So you get all of this additional content in them as well. Um, one thing that I didn't cover, which I feel I should just briefly touch on, is there is a difference between using the SRD for publishing your own 5th edition compatible items and actually wanting to write something specifically for the Forgotten Realms, which is a copyrighted D&D thing. The Dungeon Masters Guild has a slightly different set of rules where if you publish through the Dungeon Masters Guild, not only can you design content for using the 5th edition rules, but you can set it in the Forgotten Realms and you're allowed to include those copywritten elements such as Beholders and Mel's Acid Arrow, etc. Um, it also allows you to sell it through the official D&D Online Marketplace. Whereas if you wanted to do something like uh, create a, oh I don't know, a, a space-themed RPG, that uses 5th edition rules as its base, then the SRD is what you would base that on, and you wouldn't be able to include the Forgotten Realms, you wouldn't be able to include, you know, all the copyrighted bits. So the Dungeon Masters Guild has a slight little tweak on it again that just allows you to use those extra items. So is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Have you found a cool app, book, or other item that you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? Let us know about it by emailing us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. Now what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. This week in D&D News, now that Waterdeep Dragon Heist is out and in the hands of budding adventurers and DMs everywhere, spoilers for the upcoming Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage are slowly starting to ooze out from Wizards of the Coast. Chris Perkins recently took to Twitter to say, If you think Waterdeep Dragon Heist is full of fun surprises, wait till you see Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Hashtag Waterdeeper. And along with it posted a photo from the book concerning level 19 of the insanely large dungeon underneath Waterdeep. Level 19 is otherwise known as the Caverns of Ooze, and the artwork illustrated features an illithid pirate stood under a star map reminiscent of Crystal Sphere cosmology alongside a rodent. We're not too familiar with every breed of rodent in the D&D multiverse, though it does look to be a miniature giant space hamster. We'd probably name it Boo, though. The text in the photo does get cut off at certain points, obviously Chris isn't going to spoil too much, but the introduction in the first column reads, Named for the primordial ooze that flows through its naturally formed tunnels and chambers, this cavernous level of Undermountain is designed for four 15th level characters. Those who overcome its challenges should reach 16th level. 
Whimsical even by Undermountain standards, the Caverns of Ooze offer DMs the rare opportunity to sing, should they wish to. Uh, luckily for my players, this isn't likely to be on the cards. Lennon's players, however, might want to steer clear of this level. The second column is headed Scavenger Crew and gives us a bit more of the backstory of this level. It reads, The Mad Mage captured a spacefaring pirate ship called the Scavenger, stole the magical device that propels it, and left the derelict vessel and its crew to rot in the Caverns of Ooze. The ship's Mind Flayer captain, see Captain Nagathrad on page 250, was forced to eat the brains of several shipmates to survive. The remainder of the crew fled into the caverns and have taken refuge in the ooze-filled caverns around the ship. Now the Illithid, and that's where it cuts off. Yeah, he was forced to eat the brains forced. of his crewmates to survive. Forced into it. Yeah, like I believe well, that. <laughs> to, to be fair, there probably weren't a whole lot of other sentient beings or beings at all down there with brains to eat, so... Yeah, mm, I, I <laughs> just forced, forced. Mm. I expect there was a little bit of desire there as well. But Also, I'm almost positive primordial ooze is not the only type of ooze down there. Yeah, I have a feeling that there will be several different types. I'm really hoping there's going to be an Oblex down there. Because <laughs> I think Oblex with an Illithid pirate captain will certainly be fun. Agreed. If, if the level recommendation is level 15... That suggests that the levels don't necessarily get tackled in order. Yeah, potentially. This is, um, to not confuse the terms, this is floor 19 in the dungeon. Right. And the characters are recommended to be level 15. So, yeah. Because if this is supposed to follow right after Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which theoretically should finish up with the characters somewhere between levels 4 and 6, that would mean that... If you're meant to gain a level per floor of the dungeon, you wouldn't be, you'd be a lot higher than that if you were taking them in order. Of course, that's an assumption that has no basis other than assumption, so. I think it's reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, the artwork on this and the miniature giant space hamster, this is definitely more Spelljammer stuff that's coming out. Obviously, Illithid Pirate, that's a pretty good indication as well, and stole the uh, mechanism from his ship. That's another good indication. But this is definitely like super strong hints that we surely got to be having Spelljammer soon. I just loved the homage to Pirates of the Caribbean with the way that that Illithid pirate looks. Yeah. yeah it's definitely a lot of Davy Jones going on there. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to bring this up while you were in your groove, but miniature giant? Really? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a thing. It's a thing. Go and ask Minsk. He'll tell you all about it. I am wondering if they might be trying to force too much Spelljammer stuff in because they've got the rumors thing that we discussed last week mm -hmm. about the crash ship on Earth. Uh, the Barrier Peaks. Yeah. Right. They've got this, the um, spacefaring vessel that was captured. We already know that there will be a portal to the the asteroid base. Yep. Which was another Spelljammer thing, and they referenced that in one of the original announcements about Dungeon of the Mad Mage. So I'm not sure if they're just pushing all of the Spelljammer stuff out as spoilers and suggestions first 
because they know that they sort of, you know, pulled the rug out from a lot of people when they were essentially promising Spelljammer without promising it, and then it turned out not to be Spelljammer? Right. Or, if I want to be paranoid about it, are they pushing all of this Spelljammer stuff in because they aren't actually going to do a separate Spelljammer release and it's just going to be all of this. Like, there will be references to what used to be Spelljammer and eventually there might be rules for space-faring ships and things like that, but you're not going to get a fully contained Spelljammer release but we want to make sure everyone knows that all of this Spelljammer stuff is being shoved into all of these other resources. I can see where you're going with that. I am crossing my fingers that it's just an overlap and that there really will be a Spelljammer release later. But even if there's not, I'm okay with this. This being just having the odd references here and there? or Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. I mean, it is quite fun having them all in, and I think the breakaway from pure fantasy is good anyway. I think part of the reason I feel that way is because I've never actually played Spelljammer, but I like the idea of it. Right. So I'm sure that the people who have played Spelljammer in the past are probably really wanting it to come out as its own thing later, but as somebody who hasn't experienced it at all, I like this overlap. Well, Tito did promise it, so... I suppose the only risk is that for people who aren't necessarily sold on it, it's becoming harder and harder to avoid it. Because now you're basically guaranteed that if you're going to do Dungeons of the Mad Mage, you're going to have to deal with some sci-fi in your fantasy. And there are a certain number of people that prefer you know, fantasy be fantasy. And if they prefer to follow the official D&D releases from Wizards of the Coast rather than homebrewing their own stuff, that means they basically have to either skip those particular levels in Mad Mage or just suck it up and deal or skip the resource entirely. I see it as a risk if they start inserting the Spelljammer stuff all over the place. Because, for example, if you're not as sold on, for example, the the steampunk heavy magic pervasiveness of Eberron, you just don't play Eberron. You you can deal, you can completely section that off and like put it to the side. Didn't Wizard say at one point that Dungeon of the Mad Mage was designed so that you could pick and choose which levels you wanted to include as they fit your storyline? Yeah, they said that was perfectly possible, but they also marketed it as a wholly self-contained resource so you can play dungeons of the mad mage all on its own it's not it's not like one page dungeon where in order to make all of those dungeons flow together you have to write up the narrative to link them all like at, at least as we've been told so far mad mage has a connective tissue that links all of them together and characters can start at floor one and make their way to floor 20 either consecutively or in some random order that's unknown at the moment but if dungeon masters want to grab a particular 
floor that they that appeals to them and jettison others, they're perfectly capable of doing that. Yeah, I kind of get the sense that they're doing a sort of Storm King's Thunder approach, where in that one you had the four different types of giants, and you could fight all of them if you wanted to, or you could just fight one or two or whatever your DM needed to get you between the intro and the finale. Right. The D&D Adventurers League Eberron Season 1 has kicked off with its first module, although the product code is ELW00, so maybe the zeroth module? Anyway, what's past as prologue is out now on the DM's Guild, priced at $4.99 US. Set in Sharn, the city of towers, your character has the chance to get paid rather handsomely for a simple expedition for Morgrave University, which should be fairly straightforward and absolutely nothing could possibly go wrong. Right? This opening adventure sets up Season 1 for the Embers of the Last War storyline and is a 2-4 hour adventure that sees players running one of six specially pre-generated level 0 characters which then retire at the end of the adventure and become NPCs for later adventures in Season 1, though any items earned will be passed on to the player's regular Adventures League character. So, me speaking personally here, being a fan of Eberron, although not running Adventurers League games or playing in them myself, I was curious, so I went and picked up a copy. Now, I'll try and keep this next bit as spoiler-free as possible. So firstly, the adventure itself. There's not really any major combat per se, though there are definitely a few decent encounters that are in there regardless. The adventure doesn't come with any stat blocks, unlike other Adventurers League titles where if you expected to run combat, they will give you stat blocks for certain monsters, etc. And so the combats that you do get kind of feel like you should be running them more narratively and definitely more theatre of the mind uh, rather than anything you'd need to break out a battle map and fight for grid for. In fact, to be honest, the whole adventure feels more story than swordplay, and I can definitely see that with some groups this could pretty much just become a two to four hour cutscene rather than the usual type of adventure that you would associate with D&D. Overall though, as an adventure, eh, it doesn't really get much better. It did feel quite railroady, and I didn't feel that the story hook was that solid. Your characters have to do the things that they do because, well, that's just what the module demands. And finally, if, like me, you're a fan of the Eberron lore, well, there's a few things that this module phrases pretty badly, and a lot of it that it just gets absolutely wrong. For an adventure that focuses on the final days of the Last War, it doesn't even refer to the Last War as what it actually is, which is a major war that enveloped all five nations, and instead it terms it as a civil war restricted to just one country. To kind of paraphrase, this would be pretty much like describing World War II as the American Civil War. The size, the economy, the stakes are just completely uncomparable. It also paints Shan as kind of being a neutral territory, but like, make no mistake, Shan is no Switzerland. In our analogy, it's more like Britain. And so to further paraphrase, it's like a Brit referring to World War II as the American Civil War, whilst World War II is actually being fought. It also sets the Day of Mourning, which is a pretty big event in Eberron, as being the end of the Last War, and seems to completely gloss over and forget about the Treaty of the Thronehold altogether, opting instead to free the Warforged almost immediately. Further, airship design and Dragonmark pilots are all sorts of messed up, and these lore inconsistencies keep building up and building up and building up. 
Honestly, for the first foray for Eberron on the Adventurers League and for a product that Wizards of the Coast are advertising, quite frankly, I expected more polish and for it to be held to a much higher standard. It does feel like a lot of these mistakes could have been caught with a decent editing pass from somebody who actually knew the setting, but regardless, it could have given players a lot more dice rolling and agency than even the basic storyline ended up doing. I honestly really do have high hopes for Eberron on the Adventurers League, and I would definitely be waiting to see what the next entry brings. Hopefully, all of this is just setting the stage for the ELW01 module, and this zeroth entry is kind of like a testing ground or a pilot episode, and these issues will be ironed out. However, the initial entry for me really did feel somewhat lacklustre. Thanks for letting me get all that off my chest. <laughs> yeah, and for anyone who wasn't aware that Lennon is a fan of Eberron, please refer to any of our last 10 or 20 episodes. <laughs> um, so you also picked up the, quote, living document Eberron uh, player's guide yes. that is currently in semi-official beta test for Wizards. Did that resource have lore in it? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it even goes into details about the last war and how it was this major conflict. And that's why I'm so surprised that even the, you know, it, whoever wrote it, even if they didn't have access to the fourth edition and third edition materials, what's in the Wayfarer's Guide is, it has all this information in there. And it was such an easy thing to have actually caught and to not let those kind of mistakes slip through. Alright, so there's no chance that this was just advertised as having to do with the last war and it actually turns out to do with some other war they decided to go with. This is 100% no. a continuity error. Exactly, yes. Um, in order to not give away too many spoilers, there is something that occurs that it absolutely is the last war without a doubt, apart from the title alone. Okay, that's that's disappointing then, because up to now, in 5th edition in general, not just in Eberron, they've been fairly good about returning to the old lore roots, or if they change something, it's at least in the vein of, okay, I can buy that, as opposed to, wait, what are you doing here? I can see how you are taking this, but... Uh, the way that you've described it, and also me as somebody who has uh, not played anything in Eberron before, and I also haven't looked over this module, are you sure that it's a lore uh, discontinuity, or is it just how these pre-generated level zero characters who turn into NPCs later experienced it from their side? There is definitely lore errors. So, um, minor, minor, minor spoiler, um, airships are involved at one point. And in the Eberron lore, basically anybody who pilots an airship has to be a member of a particular dragon-marked house. It's just, that's effectively the, the, like, the qualification to be able to pilot one of these massive elemental-powered ships. And that is specifically ignored and in some places completely contradicted um, and also just if you want to go down to the real minor things about Eberron the way that their airships work is they're powered by captured elementals and that was it, it's not just like missing as in it could have been there they just didn't talk about it but some of the things that they have in this 
airship just completely again contradict that and there's all these sorts of things where it really does seem like the person who wrote it knew that Eberron had airships it knew that Eberron had this thing called the last war but didn't actually know what that meant and so wrote about generic airships and generic war without actually looking at what it means in terms of the world and I realize that this may sound really nitpicky, but it's this isn't just a like a, a module that's been put out there that you can just you know it's not intended to be just a source of inspiration or a module that you could adapt to your home games. This is literally meant to be an Eberron release, and this would be the equivalent of something like Tomb of Horrors not having Asarak as the main sort of dude in it or missing other kind of iconic stuff like that. And especially, like I said, for an official release. Now, the one thing that I will say is that it appears to, that this module has been written by the Guild Adepts on the Dungeon Masters Guild. And going by their previous releases, such as uh, when we did Xanathar's Lost Notes to everything else, I think that they do suffer from editing issues generally. And that's why I'm hoping that Module 01 is going to be held to a lot higher standard than this zero zero is. So, have you seen other people bringing this up, either on the re- official reviews of the reference or elsewhere? Yeah. So, again, the first thing that I did when I was reading through this, and I, for the sake of not wanting to break out the bleep machine, I'll not actually <laughs> say verbatim what I was thinking. Um, but I, I thought. My word, this is poor. And I just wanted to double check it wasn't just <laughs> I wanted to double check that it wasn't just me. So uh, the first thing that I did was I went back to the DMs Guild and I don't read reviews before I buy products, um, generally speaking, just because I don't want it to taint it. Um, but yeah, the reviews that are on there have basically brought up the same issues that I have. And then I thought, well, I know what the DM Guild is like in terms of people who are just like the vocal minority shouting. So I also went to a couple of other sources, um, Reddit being one of them, but then also some Eberron discussion boards here, there and everywhere. And everybody is saying the same as me, that there's so many lore inconsistencies. Other people did bring up other things and there were some bits that I actually disagreed with. And I think it's just, again just because they didn't mention something doesn't mean they excluded it. It just means that it wasn't mentioned. I get what you're saying. It's it's that some people explicitly want everything referenced and that's not necessary. But it sounds like there's a lot of literal contradictions of established lore, which they've established in their own resource. So I'm very curious how... I'm curious if, and if so, how... Wizards is going to react to this, whether maybe they'll throttle back on farming stuff out to the DMs Guild, or maybe it's going to go through a more rigorous editing and verification process before publication next time. Yeah, I mean, that's that's totally possible. Now, I do just want to say, just for the sake of balance, there has been another uh, official, in inverted commas, uh, publication for Eberron called Encounters in Shan, which at the time that Wayfarer's Guide to Eberron launched, Encounters in Shan is like the first actual adventure. In fact, it's a collection of, of, of adventures. It's kind of like a, a Tales from the Yawning Portal for Eberron, effectively. 
and that was also written by the DMs Guild Adepts, and it was put up on the DMs Guild. And genuinely, it is a really good, fantastic resource. The adventures are a bit short, but that is my only complaint about them. They are not law-breaking. They have actually done their research. They're fairly polished as well. So having a short adventure is like a minor complaint. This one, though, the Adventures League one, like I said, actually gets things wrong, and it's things that could have been very easily corrected. So, as a, as another example, there's a, an item that is given to people in Shan under certain circumstances that will only work within the confines of the city. It is very specific to the city. And they have this item in use later on, and it's like, all that they would have had to do is just swap the the known specific item for just a oh why don't you have a ring of protection instead or that sort of thing and it's you know like really minor things like that that they could have done that they didn't and it that's why i think it wasn't caught in the editing process well enough all right so now that we're caught up with the latest D news let's dig up some unearthed mandana and check out some exotic royalty are you sure life isn't a game what is real how do you define real uh, what's this, my mantra? The Wi-Fi password. We're not savages. I am so sick of kings and queens. <laughs> so no European vacation for you, then? No, I mean, I don't mind them as people, but every campaign you run into, the land is ruled over by king this or queen that. Even when we were running through this jungle of sentient monkey lizards, they ended up being led by Duke Longtail. It was kind of disappointing. Ah, well, a little bit of linguistic modification is in order then. Along with scenery and inhabitants, names have a huge impact on immersion and characters' sense of displacement. Characters are more quickly put at ease if they wander into town and there's an inn sign hanging outside of a building. They immediately know where to go for food, lodging, and possibly local rumors. But if characters are well off the beaten path, it's sometimes helpful to change more than the environment they're living in. As we've discussed way back, most people use European royal titles and peerage systems when they're setting up the ruling class or ruling family of an area. But the world has many, many more options of what to call and even how to structure feudal systems of government, and we'll present some of them here. A note, if you're creating a feudal system and using these verbatim, please be conscious of your audience. Some of these titles have cultural and historical baggage associated with them. For example, Caliph is an ancient title for a religious and governmental figure in the Middle East, but it has a lot of subtext for people in that area and some Muslims. Closer to home, Kaiser is simply the common German term for emperor, but after the world wars it kind of has more negative connotations. We're not going to patronise and tell people what they should or shouldn't be using in their campaigns, we just ask that everybody be mindful of the histories and cultures associated with those terms. We are also going to be simplifying a lot of these and leaving out some of the more complex titles and organisations, so history buffs, we ask your forgiveness. Oh, and pronunciation is going straight out the window, so there's nothing to help that. With that out of the way, we'll start with the Ottoman Empire, which is in modern-day Turkey for those unfamiliar. The person in charge of that had several titles depending on what period in history you're looking at, but the most well-known one is probably Sultan. The person in charge was officially called Sultan, person's name, Khan. Sultan, name, would be the prince of the family. Name, Sultan, would be a princess. Veliad is the person who's going to succeed the Sultan. The imperial consort was called Haseki Sultan. 
helping the Sultan were multiple viziers, not all of them were required to be evil, and the vizier in charge was the Sadrazam. Outside the palace and royal family, Baylor Bay were provincial governors with several bays subordinate to them and agas below them. If you go back in time to when the area of the Ottoman Empire was actually Persia, you have the Shahan Shah in charge, with the Shahzada ready to inherit when Daddy Shah gave up the ghost. The people in charge of their provinces were called Marspans, note there's no I in that word, or Kashatrapavan. Below them are the Sirdar and the Mir below them. Farther south and further back in time, you have our friends the Egyptians. Most people know about the pharaoh, but if you ask about anyone below that, people tend to get lost. The truth is that there wasn't much below the pharaoh in terms of hierarchy. The chief advisor to the pharaoh was the Jate, and between them they handled all the news coming from the Hari Sapat, or provincial governors. The Hatti were equivalent to mayors. If you look at the titles in India, it gets confusing quickly because they have a huge number of them. There is a reason for this, and we British firmly do not want to talk about it. However, if you want to set up a peerage system with Indian titles, it's probably easiest to put the Maharaja at the top married to the Maharani. The child that will inherit is addressed as the Majaraj, but the title is Maharaj Kumar for a male and Maharaj Kamari for a female. Below that, it's pretty much a shambles, but the hierarchy that probably won't offend too many historians would be Raja or Rana, followed by Thakur, Rao, and Rai. Moving across the globe, the ancient Incan civilization was headed up by the Sapa Inca, who would be married to the Koya. Their primary heir was granted the title Alqui. Below them were three levels of nobility, Capax, Huhua, and Caracas, respectively. Hopping across the Pacific, the feudal Japan that everyone likes to romanticize was headed up by a shogun. Technically, the shogun was subordinate to the Japanese emperor, but there was a heavy emphasis on technically for a long time. Below the shogun were the daimyo, followed by the samurai. Most of these were actually military titles, but when the military is in control of the government, they become titles of nobility. Rounding off our tour with a personal favorite, on the Korean peninsula, the feudal emperor had the title of Taewang, with the wang, or local kings, below them. Their heir was the Taegun, with the other children of the ruler having the title Wangjagun. Most of the other nobility had the simple kun title, but for the periods of time when they bothered to separate the lower ranks, they were Kukong, Kungong, Hyunhu, Hyunbaek, Gekukcha, and Yeonnam. I'll note that China definitely had a feudal system, but it was insanely complicated and the titles usually translated to complete sentences. They also completely reorganized every couple hundred years. So we recommend doing your own research if you want the details there. As we said, we've probably misrepresented a few of the hierarchies along the way, and we've most definitely butchered the pronunciations, except maybe Ryu's Korean. But if you want to throw some other titles in other than king or duke on your nobility, and you don't want to make them up completely, hopefully this will help you out. Okay, this is great. No more boring nobility for me. Eh, boring. You say that, but there is something to be said for the classics, though. Do you want me to bring up Charles? Okay, okay, there's no need to get like that. Uh, let's just move on to the scrying pool to see what our listeners have to say. What news from the north? Riders of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last week we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, do you play in the Adventurers League? What's your take on the changes? Are the packs truly deserving of a two-star rating? 
What's your opinion on the 5e translation of Dragon Marks? Did they do a fairly good job, or is it a poor bastardization of the wonderful rules that existed in 3.5? And do you have any thoughts or advice for Duncan and the D&D Wiki team? How can the community make it the best D&D resource available? Shiv's House of Puncakes on Discord says, On one hand, being able to choose loot that makes sense for your build is great, especially since the items you get is basically random unless you are in a consistent group and the GM is picking modules that have gear the party members can best use. On the other hand, some concerns are that removing the previous rules of who gets loot, party choice first, then who has the least items, and if any ties, it's a roll, is bowing down to the everyone wins mentality, where deities forbid people around the table have to deal with real-life conflict and maybe someone doesn't get what they want and has a sad. I don't think either side is wrong, but you can't really have both systems in play at once. It's good to get the gear you most want, but it's also good to have those table discussions and really hash out who should get the gear. And maybe there's a jerk who just wants it because they can, but don't need it. But they need to learn not to be a greedy person. Just as if there's two who legit could use it, only one can, and if one person doesn't get it, they need to deal. That's life. Obviously, there could be a solution that fits both, but these two are mutually exclusive as they are. Or there could be the set piece item, and if you don't get that, you get some treasure points. I'll let someone else tackle how it smegs up wizards since the treasure points to GP ratio is terrible for scribing spells. And Turkey Guy on Discord says, I have played in the Adventurers League. I'm looking forward to the predictability of the new system. I had a mixed experience with experience and gold rewards for time put in. The first session was 4 hours for 15 gold and 200 EXP, and then the next was 3.5 hours for approximately 150 gold and 850 EXP. I haven't run into Dragon Marks before, as 5th edition was my first D&D edition. I think they are offering an interesting incentive to play off race class combos, given the stat boost doesn't always match up with the traditional builds. And Gath Memvar wrote in on Discord saying, D&D Wiki is much improved from when I last visited some years ago. Just going to the homepage clearly defines homebrew, open gaming license, and system reference document content, as well as tackling 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and Pathfinder. I think having a best of homebrew or mod tested page would be useful so you can determine what is wildly broken or video gamey and what would be an excellent extension for the game you're running. This allows for the community to continue to submit content while sifting for the true gems. I do have to agree with Gath. When I made that comment on our last show about how the homebrew pages weren't marked anywhere on them that they were homebrew... It had been, I want to say, at least two years since I'd been to the site. I think they put that banner up since I've been there last. But I still missed it, so... Yeah. And he does have a good point that not all homebrew is created equal. So it would be nice not to sort of automatically discount homebrew just because it's homebrew. And there would be some sort of rating or review system that separates out, well... This is obviously someone who just wanted to make their character invincible versus this is an item that has some cool mechanics you could actually use in any given setting and you wouldn't have to worry too much about it being overpowered. Yeah, I would agree with that. Maybe some kind of voting? I was literally just going to say the same thing. That's how D&D Beyond handle it is basically number of upvotes. Um, oh, good. Let something rise to the surface. I mean, the, the only issue with that is that if something is stupidly OP, it could end up being upvoted just purely by the fact that it makes people invincible so everybody wants it. But I think 
this is the advantage that wikis would have is that where they can be edited and actually fully curated by not just the mods but the uh, community as a whole that's truly where its strength would lie and actually i went back again for the adventurous pack when we were talking about the srd earlier and i actually used dnd wiki as my source for compiling a lot of the references so i'm actually now starting to use it as a proper resource so i think you know kudos to the mods there it has come a long way and that brings us to this week's community questions. What do you think about more Spelljammer-ish content in Mad Mage? Is it nice flavor to hold us over, or a cover for the lack of Spelljammer and an annoying intrusion of sci-fi into the fantasy world? Is Lennon being overcritical, or should the lore inconsistencies in the Eberron Adventures League supplement have been rectified before publication? And yes. finally... <laughs> And finally, what unique or non-standard noble titles or systems have you used in your games? We particularly want to hear about any homebrews you came up with. Details on how you can get in touch, coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 42nd entry into our chronicle. Heroes Rise will be back with our 43rd entry next week on October 3rd. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at heroesrisednd. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Also, make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com or by searching for us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the sound of what we do, we're always looking for new adventurers to join the party, and all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in our show notes. No matter your passion, scribing, dungeon mastering, or audio alchemy, we're sure to have a spot at our table for you. So all that remains is for us to thank the people who make this show possible. Our head scribe, Baxter, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Gath Minvar, and of course our audio alchemists, Mikey, Branwyn, and Tomasthenes. Special thanks go to Vinsvept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vinsvept.bandcamp.com. And Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLairyD and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. Last week we asked you, the listeners out there in the universe, yeah, in the universe. Universe. Well, starting that's over. It, Lennon, they've decided that Ebron just is going to be destroyed and removed. Yeah, it's just one universe now. That's it. Yeah. I'll let someone else tickle, tickle, <laughs> tickle up the wizard. Ah. I'd rather you not. And <laughs> <laughs> low of low's lair, the banner, that the banners, the banners of our <laughs> banners designers of our and designers avatars. And avatars. <laughs> <laughs> We stick them on a pole and just have them hold <laughs> things. The banners of our designers is definitely, if I play a bard, that's the band name. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs>